Hi, I'm Mike Massimino. I'm your host tonight for Star Talk All Stars. And with me is Chuck Nice. That's right. How are you, Mike? Uh, very well, thanks, Chuck. My good friend, and he's a, he's a comedian. Very funny guy. <laughs> and uh, now a new friend is with us as well, at least new friend for me. I don't know, Chuck, if you know Matt. Yeah, well, yes. I don't. Guys have we haven't worked, worked together, together before? No, no. Okay. From that Star Talk show. Actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Matt O'Dowd, who is an astrophysicist, a professor at Lehman College, at the uh, City University of New York in the Bronx. That's it. And he's also the host of the PBS show Space Time. Space Time. It's true. It's all true. Thank this you is, for having me. This is such a pleasure. I'm, I'm lucky to be here myself, Matt. I'm just glad <laughs> to be here as well. So I'm, I think, thank you for whoever arranged this for having all. How about you, Chuck? Are you happy to be here? Well, like, I'm the one who arranged one it. Believe me. I right. put this party together. So I'm, right, I'm we're very, very happy. Thank, thanks for having us. I think we should thank Chuck. Thanks for having us here, Chuck. <laughs> pleasure to be here. All right, so uh, what are we doing tonight? We're going to do some cosmic query. Yeah, you know, so every once in a while, what we like to do is put a call out to the people who listen to the show and ask them to send us whatever questions they would like. When for this one, we're talking about um, queries that have to do with deep space, uh, uh, and, and kind of inspired by the new show that was a reboot of the old show, mm -hmm. Lost in Space. I don't know if you ever. Which was a reboot of the Swiss Family Robinson. It was it absolutely yeah. was. Yeah. This is such an this is such a, a, a show with so much information, <laughs> so informative. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. Absolutely, so, yeah. So Swiss Family Robinson, basically the same there. story. Yeah, same We're, story. Uh, yeah, they got almost like a Gilligan's Island Robot. thing. I think Does anything to do with Gilligan's Island? Can you throw that one in there? <laughs> Gilligan's Island. They were shipwrecked. Isn't that kind of what happened to them? I haven't and, seen the new uh, Lost in Space, though, for Netflix. I haven't either. I started watching it. Did you? I did start watching what it. What were your imp impressions as an astrophysicist? As a, as a, like a, a grown-up kid, it was extremely entertaining. It was really fun. Uh, I've only watched the first two episodes so far. As an astrophysicist, I didn't hate it. Actually, which is well, that's high praise. High praise. <laughs> high praise. That's, that's I high wasn't, praise I wasn't grinding my teeth at every bad science bit. Right, so. yeah, but it's a TV show. You know, that's what I figure with with the space movies. Right, I, there you, you don't you don't go to the you don't go to the movie theater to get a degree in in astrophysics or or engine. You go to to be entertained. I, right. I think, and so if it can if you can learn something, that's great. But I don't think they necessarily have yeah. to be. It's not so much accurate. about learning; it's about being transported and the suspension of disbelief. Let me ask you: How did you feel about gravity? I, yeah, the movie Gravity. So when it comes to astronaut movies. Um, as long as the astronaut is cool, I'm okay with the movie. I really don't care about the accuracy of anything, because when they have a cool, when they have a cool guy as an astronaut or a woman, you know, if they say hey, these astronauts are cool, then people think all astronauts are like that, right? So as long, the astronaut needs to be fit. They need right. to be in extremely good uh, uh, physical condition. You guys got some good people that that, that represented you. You had Clooney, Clooney and and um, Sandra Bullock. They were both. They were both great. And, and, and like in The Martian, you had uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon and he me. was able to do things that people think I can do. Like he was hit, he got hit by an antenna at the beginning of the movie, it went inside of his chest. Right. Right. And he pulled that out and sewed himself up. Mike, can you imagine that? About a, about a week after that, I was getting, I was getting something to eat out of deli and it was a, it was a salad and had like a, like one of the plastic tops and I, I got a, I cut my finger and, and I, I was hysterical, nearly bleeding to death. <laughs> so that's the truth. But people think I can take a, an antenna out of my chest. This is the man who. Because of Matt Damon. So if the astronaut is cool, I'm okay with it. <laughs> this is the man who ripped the Hubble Space Telescope into pieces so he could fix it. Yes. In space. 
See what I mean? Now, that's an exaggeration, but I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> that sounds pretty darn cool. I ripped the telescope apart with my apart. bare hands. Exactly. You fix that thing. This uh, is a, sure I did. So we've got some... Uh, we've, we've, we've got, got our, some questions where we have gone all over the internet. So wherever you find Star Talk, where you can ask us a question, that's where we have um, gleaned these particular queries from. And let's start with, always, we uh, use a Patreon patron question, because if you support us on Patreon, and uh, you're giving us money, and that helps us continue uh, our efforts here at Star Talk, and therefore we will always give you preference when it comes to cosmic queries. In other words, we're whores. Um, <laughs> let's go to Kyle Yoakum uh, from Patreon, who says this. Actually, I'm going to save Kyle's uh, question. I'm going to go to Heidi Lynn Michaela. Is she also at Patreon? Yes, she is. apparently it wasn't doing much for the first guy. <laughs> that whole big thing. I was hoping we're taking this question because of this reason. <laughs> now we're not taking this question any longer. Did he just get it? A subscription just expire yeah. <laughs> right there on the spot? Kyle has a, um, a pretty intense question. I figured let's, let's ease into things, right? So oh. Heidi Lynn Michaela says this. Um, since the universe has been expanding since the Big Bang, have the constellations, as we recognize them from Earth, measurably changed size or shape? Love, Heidi, from Minneapolis. However, um, I think what she would mean is because the, the formation of Earth is long after the Big Bang. So, so I think what she would be saying is, if you were here, and how long would you have to go back to see a different uh, starscape in the sky. I'm just glad Matt is here to answer that question. <laughs> that's a that's a I think a pretty good question. It's a damn we got question. an expert here. So let me throw some numbers. Uh, the time it takes the Milky Way to rotate once, mm -hmm. so the, the orbit of the Milky Way is pretty long. It's like it's 250,000 years. Oh wow! Wow! Uh, so that's one time. So last time, the sun was in this spot orbiting the Milky Way. Humans. We're, we're just coming into yeah, existence. Right. Uh, and at that point, the sky would have been utterly different because the stars all, all orbit with slightly different speeds. They bob up and down through the Milky Way disk. Everything gets scrambled. Mm -hmm. I would say everything gets scrambled on a time scale of, of tens of thousands of years. So, mm -hmm. so you know, I think uh, I mean, we, can, we can predict this. We can, we, we've mapped all the velocities of the stars that we can see and we can wind that backwards and, and check that. Um, but you know, I think when the pyramids were being built, the, the stars would have been noticeably different to someone who who looked carefully. Wow! But uh, definitely on on the scale of you know the Earth's formation, it's changed a lot. Right. Yeah. Totally. That's All wild. different constellations. Who knows what the dinosaurs saw? So in a, in a lifetime, does it change? Uh, yeah. Wait, 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 in, our, in, in our lifetime, like in hundred, let's say a hundred years, would you, you? If you took a picture of the hey, my kid's born now, pow, and you take the picture of the of the sky and if you took a picture of the sky with the hubble space telescope which you fixed thanks you're welcome uh, <laughs> thank god i didn't thank god i didn't break it did some some really precise uh measurements of star positions keep going matt you sounded good yeah you could, yeah you, could, you could actually got to get back to answer that question but so far so good yeah you could, you could actually you could trace that you could see the movement over years yeah over just a few not, years yeah, but just a few but years. it's but not with the eye yeah, definitely not with the eye. I was going to say okay, that's, so that's a, 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 a very tiny significant movements. movement. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that hey, great question, Michaela. Way to go. Um, why don't we move on and go to Hashadu Hashadku uh, Hashadku from Instagram. Hashadku. 
Ashagku. That's his, that's what's written here. Okay. Uh, how many eons would have to pass for the expanding universe to reach a span of a trillion light years? Do you want to take this one? Absolutely not. <laughs> say can you say that again? What was it? So he says this: How many eons would have to pass? Yeah. The exp- is that Wait a, a minute. A metric eon, or is that uh, <laughs> how many eons would have to pass for what? For the expanding universe right. to reach a span of trillions of light years. Yeah, I, well, that's for you, Matt. First of all, how, well, I can. I mean, we got Matt seriously. Here. How big is the universe right now? If you were to give it one measurement from around ninety-three billion, now ninety-three billion light years. Yeah, you can. You can that's really big. Yeah, that's that's the that's a, it's already a tenth that size. So, right. you know, we're getting there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so we're looking at about 10 times the size of the universe now. Exactly. Okay. So, so if it kept expanding at a constant rate, it would need to do that for 10 times as long. So it would, right. need to, it would be, you know, it's now about 13 billion, 13 years, billion old, years old. So it would need to be 130 billion, billion years, years old. old. But it's not expanding at a constant rate. The expansion it's accelerating. is accelerating. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was a Hubble thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was a, a Nobel Prize awarded yeah, b- yeah. based on Hubble data. Right. Um, yeah, looking for those supernovae. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would need to just quickly solve the Friedman equations. Let me just do this in my head. <laughs> Smoke is coming out of his ears right now, for those of you not watching. I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, uh, maybe a, a few more lifetimes of the universe, probably. Right. Um, it kind of depends what dark energy is and if dark energy is constant, but I think... Right. Yeah, like... Yeah, a, because, like, what we, because we don't know what it is, we don't know how it's actually going to respond in the future, right? Or, ha- or have we been able to look back and see that up until this point, um, the dark energy has been uh, constant or consistent? Exactly right. Yeah, so it, it, it seems like it's consistent with being constant. Okay. okay. You know, but but the, what we have so far, it doesn't constrain the, you know, the error bars on, on what dark energy is doing too well. Right. It could be constant, but uh, there are telescopes planned, um, uh, an orbiting telescope called uh, W-first, which uh, mm-hmm. hopefully still launch, uh, uh, should put those constraints, figure out whether dark energy is changing in the past, whether it's increasing, decreasing. Um, and, you know, that'll tell us some amazing stuff. It, it could even, you know, slow down and stop or it could increase. It could lead to some spectacular ends of the universe like the Big Rip, which if, so if, if dark energy is increasing, then then space starts expanding on smaller and smaller scales until it's expanding inside atoms. And at that point, uh, yeah, well, we're all screwed at that yeah, point. We're all screwed at yeah, that point. It doesn't, um, yeah. But that's that's. I mean, that, that's getting way ahead. I think uh, give the universe a couple of times its current life, and and I think it'll be around that size. Wow! There you go. That's pretty cool, man. Again, nothing in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, but, uh, the real answer is uh, you don't really have to worry about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> a long time from now. <laughs> That's so cool. That is so a few more lifetimes of the universe, basically. Yeah. Uh, if you, what it's worth. Yeah, for what it's worth. Yeah. Wow, that's that's pretty. Hey, man, thanks for the question. Um, this is a great question. Uh, yeah, i got to tell you. These I'm people, really glad Matt is here. <laughs> glad I read um, this article this morning. 
All right, here's something that both of you guys can get in on. Uh, this is Weiserman uh, on Instagram. I love the fact that people are now coming to us from Instagram. Instagram has become an actual means of communication. It used to just be this passive um, app where you looked at other mm-hmm. people's lives, and now people actually communicate through this yeah. thing. It's so weird. Uh, I'm so old. Um, <laughs> this is Weiserman from Instagram says, um, what is the physical requirements to be an inner, to be, an interstellar space traveler. So, what are the, what, the basic requirements? What are the physical, physical requirements? requirements? Now, here's the thing. I will uh, ask you this, Mike. So, um, before we talk about interstellar space travel, yeah. what are the physical requirements for going into just orbit or landing on the moon? Well, uh, your physical requirements, is they, they, you want to be basically healthy. Is nothing no no uh, un- unlike what we might see in movies where yeah. they're portrayed as being super fit people. A lot of astronauts are very fit, but in general, they're looking for good health. Good health. Nothing that's nothing like Gattaca, where you know uh, there's like these stringent like you have to have perfect vision. No, now because now we have uh, you know eyeglasses and and uh, I was actually disqualified. I was medically disqualified. I was rejected from NASA outright twice, and in my third application, I got an interview, which included a uh, pretty intensive uh, physical examination. It was over a course of a week when you when you get to the interview stage for an astronaut, and I was medically disqualified because of my vision. And back then, uh, for being a mission specialist, you're, they required our pilot astronauts to to be to still see twenty twenty at that at back then. And for the mission specialist, which I was, which was not a pilot who was going to fly the shuttle, I think it was 2,200 or so. It still wasn't perfect vision, um, but you need to be able to see at least that well unaided. Now they've changed those requirements, and they accept things like LASIK and so on. So, right, so if you get your eyes corrected, it's okay? It's, well, be careful. Before you run out and do that, go check with the NASA regulations so you don't come blaming me. <laughs> but from what I understand, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, I was medically disqualified, and then I went through some vision training to naturally improve my vision, and it worked. And so I was able to see the eye chart a little bit better and was able to get requalified and then eligible again for another interview with, with NASA. But uh, they're generally looking for people with, who are with, with good health. So nothing overly bad uh, in your, in, with you, and that means not a propensity for things like kidney stones. That's not a good thing to have. A fairly healthy heart and, and, and a good enough physical condition where you're not a health risk. And I thought I thought space. you said mentally, uh, but you said medically. I said medically, yes. But, but there must maybe be I said mentally. I could have said mentally. Must be some psychological it might have been there. testing. Well, obviously not, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at what we got. You know, look at this right here. Yeah, no, there is that as well. Yes, they go through. Um, they, you go through medical evaluation, your mental evaluations, uh, IQ tests, uh, personality profile type stuff, mm-hmm. and you uh, speak with the uh, with the shrink, with the psychiatrist, and. And make sure there's nothing so now, uh, that in the they mo- should be concerned about in that regard. Of course, I get all of my information from films. Yes. So when you see the their, the pilots who are going to be astronauts, and they're going through the centrifuge, and they're going through all of the like the under where they put you underwater and all. Did you do all that stuff? Yeah, are, I did are that after. That's real? after selection. Oh. So there's selection, and then there's your training. Ah. And so things that you do underwater, and things that you do. In a centrifuge, where I wrote the centrifuge, which simulates your launch G-force uh, G profile. Um, so I did all those things, but that was you black out? selection. 
Did you? Did no, 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 no. So they don't. Again, that's the other thing too. Is that they're not trying to. A lot of these things, like even the training, like an officer and a gentleman to refer to another. Yeah. When a guy passes out in the chamber, in right. the in the altitude chamber, uh, that they they have that set up so you recognize your symptoms of hypoxia. So what that is about, if you remember that scene, or what, what they what they do to pilots, and it's part of your physiological training. That's not during selection either. That's after after you're selected. We got that training. Uh, where if, if you're in an aircraft or in a spaceship, or but, but primarily it's for aircraft, and you have a cabin leak in the aircraft we fly in, a high-performance aircraft we had, um, you, it's not a fully pressurized cabin like when you're flying on a commercial airliner. So if you have a, a leak um, and it's not detected by the system, you will have symptoms. Right? You'll start to, things will happen to you as you become oxygen deprived. Right. And so that's the point of that exercise, for example, is that you're, you're being trained to understand your symptoms. So if you start to sweat or you get hot flashes or you get nervous or you can't see clearly or something's happening, they're pretty much individualized. And you'll recognize that and you'll say, hey, wait a minute, let me check my, my O2. And then you can do something to correct it. So a lot of the things we do like in the, the, the G-forces is just to get you used to it. Not to see how many you can stand, but right. so you'll know not what it feels it, like. It's not really an endurance thing. It's No, it's, it's a more training. Of a training thing. It's a training thing. Wow. Yeah. Super cool, man. Oh, yeah. Cool. So I don't know how that might apply to... Uh, the longer term space travel but at least that's what we have going now and we'll be right back after this break with more of your cosmic queries welcome back to star talk all stars i'm your host mike massimino uh some of you may know me as astro mike on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle and yes. kind of my general nickname. Tweeted from space. Kind of, I first got to tweet from space. That's right. So, like, yeah. Uh, and co-hosting today is my good friend, comedian Chuck Nice. And joining us is our expert in-studio guest. Very lucky to have him. Astrophysicist Matt O'Dowd, host of PBS Space Time. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for being here, Matt. So much fun. We got the Matt with the big brain answer the questions. And we're ready for more questions. Oh. Let's go to our cosmic queries. Chuck, what do we have? Let's what do, do you got? it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, uh, let's have some fun with Conrad Weiser, who comes to us from Facebook. And Conrad would like to know, what would be your choice of cookie or snack on a mission across the galaxy? How cool is that? What would wow. you, what would be your? You can only take one though. I got. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make his question just a little more because you know we all we all love. I was wondering about that. You want to clarify that one? Yeah. Just just one, one food to eat every day. One. Well, no, just one snack. Food. Oh, one snack. Everything food. else is horrible. Everything else can be there, but just one. One snack your favorite food, snack. Your favorite snack, like a cookie or a pie or a cake mm. or like you know. Really Matt, tough. go ahead. What do you, have you, I was just, what do you think? So I just watched the first two episodes of Lost in Space, and I noticed that there was some, some pretty obvious product placement. Yep. One of the characters went back into the destroying spaceship to get a, a box of Oreos. Oh, uh, wow. I thought that was... Ah, that yeah. was <laughs> Even in deep you space know, travel, there are Oreos. Uh, Oreos are pretty good, but uh, I'm not sure it would be my number one. I think it would have to be chocolate of some sort, though. Mm. I, would, yeah. uh, I would just get more and more sad if I didn't have chocolate. It is interstellar space travel. And if we're floating around, an Oreo is very popular in, in space travel as we know it now. Because oh, really? if you're floating around, mm -hmm. and you don't want, one thing you don't want with food is crumbs. 
So an Oreo, Oreo has the advantage. You can sh- if you can shove it in your mouth, all, in your mouth, get it in your mouth all at once. Just frowned on to do the little break them apart, lick the. Yeah, you could try that, but you have to be very, very careful very not careful. to create crumbs because those crumbs float around. They can get in your eye. You can inhale them. They can go places. So that's oh, not just necessarily a good the thing. Whole spacecraft. Yeah, but I did take a, a snack food with me that I had made special uh, biscotti. Really? A biscotti. Mm. Yes, from my from my friends. Area. From yes, there's a story from uh, Michael's Bakery in Brooklyn, uh, and uh, they have my my friend Anthony Bruno, who has a uh, restaurant. It's Anthony's Runway. We're doing lots of free advertising here. Aren't I was about we? to say, do you want to run, drop in another runway eighty four? <laughs> uh, runway eighty four in Fort Lauderdale, my friend's restaurant. You can see a picture of the biscotti that I ate in space that we got from his cousin's place, Michael's in Brooklyn. Now, do you have had, coffee up there too? To we do. You have biscotti? espresso. Yes, you have oh. espresso. Or you can have regular coffee, Kona coffee. How do, you, how do you drink an espresso? Is it like a bubble sort of forming? You dip your biscotti in the bubble. This is really a good, no, see, that's one of the problems we have in space is liquids getting, uh, op- open liquid is a problem too in, in, in zero gravity. So we, we drink out of pouches, out of, of a drink bag, more or less, sort of like a, you know, you sort might like see, my daughter in kindergarten. Exactly. I have a juice box or, you know, right. something that the kids take to school. Uh, with that though, there, the advantage of that is that you can, when they, they're launched empty, so you can stack up a lot of those foil pat if they're empty, you can get a whole bunch of them. And just the powder is in there, so everything is is powdered drinks, mm. not not carbonated drinks. No carbonation is isn't available, but but you can add water to get coffee or lemonade or orange drink, which used to be known as Tang. Really, it still is Tang, but we call it orange orange flavored drink. Oh wait, it actually Tang was a real thing. Tang. Yeah, a real thing, man. It's a real product. Uh, yeah, get out. Yeah, but we. Yeah, but in NASA... I mean, uh, I, mean I know Tang yeah. is real. I saw the commercials. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tang went to space. I believe it did, yeah. It was invented, I thought. Oh, right. okay. Well, it's a, I don't know about that, but, but we don't, we're not allowed to call it that because that's a commercial product. So we call it orange-flavored drink. But I think wow. the powder actually it's inside that tang. pouch... I would just call it Space Tang. tang. Space Tang, yeah, that would be, yeah, actually, that would be that better. that doesn't sound good. No, be careful with that, that one. That. Yeah, but it is, sir. So, uh, yeah, you can get all those drinks. And I had biscotti that was bite-sized biscotti. Nice. But I think if I was, if I was choosing to go in, I, I think I would choose uh, some, some sort of candy like M&M's. Well, that's not because bad. not only can you you can eat them one at a time, you could also float around a cabin like you're a fish, right? And and you can play with them and throw them <laughs> to your friends easily. So because it's the only snack I can have, it can't just be it right. just can't. It has to be something I can play with. You don't want to get so, bored with it, right? I want to be right. able to play with it as different colors, and so I'd go with the yeah M and M. Going with mini cupcakes. That's all. All right. Yeah, it's a good be. idea. Yeah. Oh, once again, you can also pop them bite size. Perfect lines. bite size. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. Uh, uh, who was that? Who, who gave us that? Conrad Visa. Thank you so much. Um, let us go to Tom Humphrey coming to us from space uh, from Facebook. I said Spacebook. Oh, what a Freudian slip it was. Spacebook, huh? Um, Tom Humphrey wants to know this. If and when we inhabit Mars, how will people decide who owns the planets, the continents, the countries, uh, if there is any, or is there any plan? I mean, we need a lawyer, not. Yeah, I mean, since we don't have them, we'll just make up the rules. We'll come up with anything we want. Exactly. I'm going to. I'm going to go with interplanetary warfare. Um, yeah. <laughs> seeing as how that's pretty much how we settle things yeah. here on Earth. Uh. <laughs> Whoever gets there first, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it can hold it. Yeah, it is, a, it is a tough one. I think it's something that we we don't think about these kind of science fictiony problems of the future, even though they're coming up fast. I think. Yeah, and 
at some point someone's going to have to think pretty hard about who, you know, how, how do you decide that your plot of land is your plot of land on Mars? I think maybe it'll happen in the same way that people figured out who owned what when, say, the United States was settled. Yeah. You, know, you if you plant your flag there or if you build your log cabin there, then... And know. then kill anybody who comes near. <laughs> uh, pretty much is I mean, terrible. Why are we laughing at that? <laughs> oh, exactly. It's a terrible situation. It might, But it may be something similar like we have with Antarctica, maybe, where lots of countries are participating. And, right. and I think that this is... I think this is hopefully something we can... Uh, we can talk about with other countries that are going, and yeah. we have like we have the United Nations now as we, yeah. when we were settling country. Well, so. I, I hate to be a jerk, but I'm going to say that uh, if you can't get there, then you can't be in the conversation. So who who else is able to get there? Hmm, let be hmm, the United States and who else? Uh, oh, China, the United States. Be, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, China. China. Oh, so sorry. Russia. Maybe China. China. Maybe China. But what I think what we'd want to do here, Chuck, is open it up to our you know to other countries so they can participate in some way. Screw those countries. This is America. <laughs> this is America. Okay. Screw those countries. Mars is ours. <laughs> so we have ours the answer. Ours. <laughs> you have the answer to your question. Actually, Australia has a clandestine space program. That's great. We, we already there you go. <laughs> yeah, we're I've already got some kangaroos. We're not making any friends here, Chuck. That's not nice. <laughs> of course, we I need everyone's help. I am joking. We can't do it alone. Well, we hopefully need it'll all be of our the international space station That's is right. international. There you go. It's all the countries of Europe and Japan and our. Mm-hmm. Canadian Plus friends the and us and the Russians even it's private work with them of course going to do it first and does private industry have the same loyalties I mean that might be a difference well, you can forget about it then because yeah. then it's going to be how much money do you have to right. get here and that'll be the end of the story you know yeah Anyone who's running it yeah right uh, okay. I think it's going to be a little bit of everything I think it's going to be some private industry I think it'll be some uh, some uh, countries there for right. the governments for research purposes like similar to hopefully like something we have in in, uh, yeah. in uh, and it's Antarctica. funny to say that because honestly, right now, that's kind of what's happening right now. I nah. mean, you look at all these private industry companies that are going to space, but then they carry the payloads of governments. Mm. So government is actually underwriting and supplementing the uh, programs through. Oh, we need to get this space. Sa- we need to get this spy satellite up there. So mm-hmm. how much money are you paying that's them? How to SpaceX g- got started exactly. I mean, so you know, seed funding from Musk, but. So all of the first contracts were NASA. Well, yeah, exactly. And Adam still are. I mean, he just launched a NASA payload, the, uh, the one that's going to look for the planets. Uh, yes. Thank you. It's good to have this guy on, man. <laughs> it's always he's great. Got, he's got it all. He knows all that astronomy stuff. And I, I, that's why I love being around don't astrophysicists. Oh, it's awesome, man. They got all the answers. Yeah, all the answers. And they have, they, you know, they're launching cargo to the space station and so on, SpaceX and Boeing. Uh, SpaceX and Boeing have a commercial crew uh, contract with to launch astronauts to the space station, hopefully soon. Orbital, Orbital ATK is also launching cargo to the mm-hmm. space station. Right. And then you've got some of the other companies like uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are getting on the act. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, very exciting times. Cool, man. Yeah. All right. Why don't we move on to... Um, let's. Hey, you brought up the ISS, Mike. So why don't we go to Tim Wall 2018 from Instagram who says this... Uh, with the talk of the U.S. dropping out of the what? ISS, 
Mm-hmm. Could the International Space Station physically be moved into an orbit around the moon? Oh. And if so, possibly used as a tourist destination. Wow. Uh, it, it, first of all, that's, that's a really cool idea. I would go. Yeah. One thing. Yeah, I would go too. Uh, I got to admit, I'm, I, I would like to see Earth from space, but that's about it. But if I can go on the space station, that's mm. a different story. But first of all, what's he mean? Are, are we really dropping out of the ISS? Is, 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 is that being discussed or what? Yeah. Have at it. I mean, you know, what am I allowed to say? <laughs> I'll say it, yes. No, I, well. So, 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 so put it this way. Uh, the, the presidential budget is a recommendation to Congress, and Congress either takes it or leaves it. Right. And I think if, if the past year is the experience, con- uh, Congress doesn't pay that much attention to the presidential budget at the moment these days. Uh, and so... Uh, I mean, so I, I mentioned W first earlier. This is the the next huge uh, NASA uh, astrophysics mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like the number one recommendation of the decadal uh, review, and it, it's, it's it's incredible. It's the thing that's going to unlock dark energy and, and a lot of new physics. And it was zeroed out in the presidential budget, but uh, a lot of members of Congress, I think, uh, bipartisanly, will support it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, so this is similar with ISS, uh, it, the um, you know the President Trump would would like to end uh, our participation. Well, I, th- I think with the way it, um, it, the space station we first launched first element in '98, we've had people on board since 2000. So these years are going by, and I think uh, what what currently we're going to be funding the station uh, with our tax money, more or less, put it, put it that way till. Uh, 2024, I think, is, a, is the current plan. Mm-hmm. And so the, uh, the, the hope is um, that that can end in 2024 and it can be turned over to a commercial enterprise. So this is what I think on this, Matt and Chuck. This is what I think is that we're going to keep the space station working as long as it's still operating well. If it can be turned over to private enterprise and it can be used for commercial purposes, that would be great. And that's, I think, what the, the hope is. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, because it's very expensive to operate that. And uh, we were talking earlier, I think, in a, in a different segment uh, that we were discussing earlier. But we're finding ways to use zero gravity for different types of research and, right. and discovery. And uh, more and more commercial entities are becoming part of that. It's not just the government now. And so if you could turn that over as a commercial laboratory, right. I think that would be that'd be everyone's first choice. You solve the space station, you can make money with it, and then NASA can turn its attention toward the next step, which would be going to the moon or Mars or beyond. So I think that that would be great. But I think the reality of it is is that, that that's probably not going to be possible. So now what happens to the space I think we're going to have to keep it, probably keep it going a little bit longer. But again, but what happens 2024, that means it's been operating for 20, a long time. That's, that's a, a long time. Yeah. But so let's say, for instance, at some point, wouldn't it have to be decommissioned or could it just go indefinitely? And then what happens to it then? Do you send it out into space or do you deorbit it? And like, how do you, I mean, because it's a big thing to bring down or. It's a really big thing. I mean, it's to bring huge down. to bring that down. Right. So how do you, you know, what do you do with that? What, what do you do with this monstrosity that's it's in the big. sky? The length of it, the truss work is, over, yeah, is about the size of a football would it, field. Would it hit the ground if it re-entered or would it burn up? Yeah, so, so there's a couple. Th- one is, is that the idea of the tourism thing, about sending it up to, to, to the moon, I think is a, probably in, infeasible because it's so big. Right. To launch that thing, to get a gigantic rocket underneath it, to bring it to the moon. 
I, I think that's that's probably not going to happen. But um, there are there are companies that are interested in using it for things like either commercial. Um, a commercial laboratory use or possibly for tourism or so I don't think that that's that far-fetched okay. as long as it's still operating efficiently it'll work eventually though it'll decay as if we don't continue to reboost it right. we had the Chinese space station uh, and re-enter yeah and what what so there's even though you're in space even though you're up there above our atmosphere Right, Matt, there's still little trace elements there's little molecules and you're going so quickly uh, the drag equation, the equation for drag, which is more like you think of it as friction for those who aren't familiar with the idea of drag, it's going to slow you down. If you think of friction in the atmosphere, it's velocity squared. So 17,500 miles an hour squared is a really big number. A big number. So even a little bit of, a little bit of, of, of particles, molecules is going to, is going to create a lot of drag. So you're saying slow that. Slow you down. Eventually it's going to slow down. What are these particles? I mean, is that enough of Earth's atmosphere that's kind of escaping? The little bit of Earth's atmosphere that we're losing? I mean, that it's not even necessarily escaping. It's just very diffuse up there. It sort of thins out as it you get thins higher out, and thins higher. Out. So it really is just a little teeny, teeny, teeny bit of atmosphere. It's like it's, it's surfing on the very tip top of the atmosphere. Wow. But it's enough to eventually bring things down unless you reboost them. So with the uh, space station, there are boosters on there. Right. On the Russian segment, Russian, Russian thrusters, where they can reboost the space station. We used to do that with the shuttle. When the shuttle visited, give it a little boost. We did that with Hubble. We gave it a little boost each time. As you get it higher, you're buying more time. Right. It'll, it will decay. You'll 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 lengthen its life. Right. Okay. It gets to a higher altitude. Longer for the orbit to degree. But it, it's but it's significantly. Mo- it's it does need to be reboosted. And eventually, if you stop doing that, it'll hit pick up more and more of the atmosphere, slow down more and more through the drag or friction, and eventually re-enter. For for the plan for Hubble, for example, is we put a docking ring on the bottom of it so that. 30 years from now or so when it's coming down, we'll attach a rocket motor to it. And un, un, nobody on board, unmanned rocket booster would go there and then uh, and, and guide it down. Wow. And the space station will have a guided entry as well. Right, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, so you think our planet is mostly water, mostly water yeah. you know, 70% water. And we only live on about 10% of the land. So there's a lot of desert and mountains and stuff like that. So the, and most of the stuff will burn up in reentry. But still, you want to guide those, that big piece into an ocean. And that's what, that's what will happen with the space station. That's what's going to happen with Hubble. That's not what happened with the uh, Chinese space station, but it didn't hit anything. So. Okay, cool. Well, we got lucky. We dodged the All space right. station. All right, man. Well, that's, that's all we have for this segment. We're going to take a short break, but uh, we'll have more of the Cosmic Queries coming up in a minute. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Mike Massimino, your host this evening, and joining me as co-host is Chuck Nice. Hey, Mike. And our special guest today is astrophysicist Matt O'Dowd. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much, guys, for being here. Yeah. It's time for more Cosmic Queries. Do you have any more, or are we out of them? Uh, you know what? We are filthy with queries. All right, great. Yes. We got let's a go. lot. So let's do this one. Let's get uh, the... Uh, since you gave me a hard time about Kyle Yoakum uh, from Patreon, why don't we get to Kyle's question? And uh, he says this, it seems statistically impossible for life to, to not exist elsewhere in the universe. But I try to consider all the possibilities to keep an open mind. If we were able to look 
throughout all the visible cosmos, planet by planet, and we found no life at all, given our current understanding of the universe, what might be our best scientific explanation for why we would be alone. Mm. Now you know why I didn't want to start with this uh, because it's a little. Wow, it's a it's that a, was a big, good choice. Yeah, he, he level is a great question. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Matt, give us the answer. Uh, and by the Not way, there. and then he and he says, "P.S. What snacks do you like?" No, I'm joking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This. Wow. We talk more about the space ice cream. <laughs> I think we should try to hit every part one. of this question. Yeah, it it's a, there's a lot of stuff packed yeah. in here. Statistically unlikely for life not to exist elsewhere. I mean, good point there. The Kepler Space Telescope has shown us that there are probably 40 billion Earth-like planets in our galaxy. Just in our galaxy. Our galaxy and there's a billions of galaxies? There are maybe a couple hundred billion. A couple hundred billion galaxies. galaxies. So times that by that, and you get... So there's 40 billion Earth-like planets in our galaxy, and there's a couple hundred billion galaxies. So, so that's a great... And these are, planet, you know, these are planets that could potentially have life. They, they may have liquid water... Okay, so be in the their star's habitable zone at the at the right place to have liquid water, mm-hmm. and so so potentially form life as we know it. Uh, add to that the fact that when we look at our own fossil record, mm-hmm. we see that life formed almost as soon as it it feasibly could. The the earliest confirmed fossil I think is now three point seven billion years ago. What? So it has to be a microscopic fossil then, right? Yeah, it's a, a little uh, hematite fossil from uh-huh. Greenland that, that looks for all the world like... 3.7 billion years ago. And the Earth is what, 4.6 billion years uh, old? Yes, yeah, 4.5. But, 4.5? But, but, but add to that the fact that Earth, the, the crust of the Earth was probably pounded mm-hmm. into, into liquid again at around 4 billion years ago by the, the so-called late heavy bombardment. So... Uh, so, so it was a magma world only four billion years ago, and then only three hundred million years after that, which is you know a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. We have very simple life forms. We have essentially green slime covering the planet. Mm-hmm. So that's that's super primordial fast. ooze. Exactly, that's super fast, and so it's hard to imagine that you know if life happens as soon as it can, as it did on Earth, then uh, there should at least be a lot of green slime planets throughout our galaxy. Gotcha. Um, and so, I mean, the next part of the question mm-hmm. is is great. What if we looked and we found that uh, that, Plan- that it wasn't yeah. it's planet by planet? And we just we so we go through these forty billion planets. Knock on all the doors. Knock on every. <laughs> what do we say? Forty billion. Forty billion is what the estimate. Milky Way. That's right. the estimate. Just, yeah. in just the Milky Way. The Milky Way. Yeah. And we go by planet by planet. In a hundred billion galaxies, you said. Give or take. Yeah. Give or take with forty billion planets apiece, more or less. Round numbers, we're talking a lot of, lot of, lot of possibilities. I didn't do my 40 billion. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of door knocking. Hey, anybody home? Yeah. We have to do a lot of so knocking on You'd have to be one hell of a Jehovah's yeah. Witness. Right. <laughs> right. We got to send all of them out. We need all of them. Exactly. All right. So, okay. what, what, so we don't find anybody. Nobody's home. What happened? Then, so there's this idea called the Fermi paradox. Have you guys heard of the, the Fermi, Fermi paradox? But explain it, explain it. Oh, I would love to explain it. Okay, so uh, proposed by Enrico Fermi, the, the great, great uh, physicist, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, uh, uh, essentially he asked the question, where is everybody? Uh, essentially saying, if the, univ- if the galaxy is such and such a size, 100,000 light years across, yet it's 10 billion years old, and there are, I mean, he, you know, he didn't know how many planets there were, but he guessed that mm-hmm. there might be many billions, then it would only take one planet to come, you know, let's say in, in their evolution towards technological life, it, it should only, if, if they came even a thousand years before us, mm-hmm. 
but there could easily be a million or, or half a billion years before us. That would still be a short amount of time. Then they would easily have time to propagate through and leave their mark throughout the galaxy. Mm-hmm. This could have happened many, many times over the history of the Milky Way, and yet we see nothing. We see certainly nothing on Earth. The pyramids were built by people, uh, and when we look at the stars, they look very natural. You know, they obey the laws of stellar physics, like down to a star. We even understand how Tabby's star works now, the one with the, the cool, mm-hmm. sweet, you know, that's dust. Uh, and, and we don't detect any radio signals. I think we've even explained the wow signal now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see nothing, and, and so it, it seems paradoxical uh, uh, that we live in such a natural-looking universe that mm-hmm. we appear to be the first ones. And wow. so, so the, the obvious resolution is that something has stopped many civilizations developing. Yeah. And the question is, where is that something in the timeline of a, a civilization's development? Uh, so the, the, that something is called a great filter. It's a, 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 an event or, you know, say some difficult step in, in the mm-hmm. process of evolution or development that stops most civilizations or slows them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the big question is, is this great filter something that we have already passed? So is it that first genesis of life? Yeah. It was very unlikely. Uh, or is it the first becoming a multicellular complex organism that was very unlikely? Or is it the development of a big brain that was very unlikely? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would, those would be great filters that were before us, that, behind us, that, that you know, we don't have to worry about anymore because we're through. Uh, but the other scary proposition is that the great filter is ahead of us. And right. Everyone, that, that other civilizations have got to our stage many times before, but they never get much further because of something. Right. So something either wipes them out or they wipe out themselves or yeah. uh, no matter what it is, it's, it's, there's um, a stunted development, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it, but, it, but it does it with such absolute reliability that even if you have billions of incidences of civilization starting, they, that, you, know, you only have to have one survive, whatever that future great filter is, in order for them to leave their mark across the galaxy. And yet we don't see it, and so it has to be. If it's ahead of us, it yes. has to be. It has to be a hundred percent efficient. You know, it, like maybe maybe the reavers come back, or maybe we all build that black hole yeah. as you know as part of our you know developing new types of energy, and and uh, that doesn't go as planned. Uh, you know, or maybe maybe death by climate change is is very reliable. Uh, so that makes sense. So. This gets me thinking, if we look throughout the galaxy and find that there is no other life at all, not even simple primordial ooze, mm-hmm. that would be a good thing because it would mean that probably the great filter is the genesis of life in the first place. And that means that we don't have to look, we're, we're less likely to look forward to a great filter uh, for us. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. But the first time we find, every time we find more and more advanced life in our galaxy, uh, you know, oops, until, we find, until we find an actual civilization, mm-hmm. then it, it should make us worry more that the Great Filter's ahead of us. Well, some, some of it might be beyond our control, right? I mean, if we have a cataclysmic event, giant rock hits us, we have nowhere else to go right now. Right. right? Yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so I think if we're buying time until we can figure out a way to really get off the planet and right. have a safe place where we could, yeah, yeah. Another, another option. 
And how about this? How often is the evidence just wiped out by the cosmos itself, such as our sun is going to expand and blow all this crap up, right? Excuse me. (laughs) I'm like, blow all this crap up. But our sun is going to expand and destroy this entire solar system. How often does that happen? I mean, our our sun has been around for 5 billion years, and it's got another 5 billion years left. Uh, So, you know, it happens a a good amount. uh, You know, this... Our solar system has been hit by a number of catastrophes over right. over time, um, but you know I think I feel like we could make our mark on the galaxy within you know thousands of years. Hmm. Right? We can hang on till then. We can hang on till then. Uh, you know we could. You know there are already We're plans screwed. to send. <laughs> what screw? Maybe, but but maybe not. You know even if there's only a one in a hundred chance that we hang on long enough right. to make that mark, then. Then I think it it like really strongly suggests that the Great Field is not ahead of us because it would only take one hundred of other civilizations to do the same. Uh, cool. So that's my feeling on the matter. But I think we will find life. I think we will find slimy life out there at some point. And what what do you think we need to do in order to be out of the woods, so to speak, that we're not? Uh we can say, all right, we're going to be around for a really long time. Would it be finding another planet to live on in case something happens here? You know. I think eventually we should do that. I'm not sure if it should be our number one priority because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's hard. You know, Mars is you know, it's not very pleasant there. I, I don't know how self-sustained uh, mm-hmm. a, a community could be. That would be tough. We need to go a lot further than that, I think. Yeah. I mean, we need something a little more Earth-like. I mean, the, the thing is, I think there are a lot of more pressing problems at home. I think it's easier to save the Earth than to, for example, terraform Mars. By a lot yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm hopeful. I don't think we would. I don't think we would do that to ourselves, destroy ourselves. I'm just saying, if there's some other, you know, some gigantic meteor headed our direction and we can't deflect uh, yeah. it, eh. so I, I understand what you're saying, but I look at it. I call it the, um, the Nero syndrome. The what? Nero syndrome. Like Robert De Niro playing your fiddle. Nero Robert or Robert De Niro? <laughs> the, uh, Nero, the the Roman dude. You talking to me? <laughs> huh? uh, yeah, no. So the deal is, like you said, I don't think we'll destroy ourselves. Yeah, it, it takes one megalomaniacal um, um, demagogue that has the ability to bring everything down. Like, and we've come close. World War II, we came yeah. very, very close. Okay, could you imagine World War II if we had uh, nuclear weapons? I mean, th- like the way we do now. Yeah. Could you imagine that? So that's when I say well, we're going to destroy ourselves. That's what, it's not really we as a species or as human beings. I just think that until we get away from the need to have these demagogues and to have a centralized leadership, that we are in danger of that. Yeah, that's all. one person with access to that red button. Exactly. So, you know. All right. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> yeah. I'm so hopeful. Guys, I'm so hopeful. All right. Um, here we go. Let's live, let's let's end on a really positive note. Okay. This is Chava Bello. And um I believe um this is um Someone that we all know, but uh, uh, it's it's Chava Bello at Emily Rice. So, um, <laughs> hey Emily, <laughs> hey, Emily. Uh, says, give us an idea of hope for space tourism. Is there any hope for space tourism? What do you think, Matt? I I, I think there is. What do you think, uh, Matt? I mean, I know that that's what Virgin Galactic is mm-hmm. all about. Uh, yeah, I, I just hope we can bring down the price tag a little bit. Yeah, I, I can't pay. What is it? 
200,000? 200 grand right now. Yeah, something like it's probably it's, uh, high enough up there that it's pretty. Mike, you got paid horrible. to go into space. I did. Suck it, everybody. Yeah. Tourism. That wasn't a vacation. <laughs> that wasn't tourism. I want to go as a tourist, Chuck. No. Oh, really? Uh, I want to go. I want, no, I want to go on and complain about the service. <laughs> Because in space, like, was, you know, I was up there, and it's always something to do. You know, hey, look at that beautiful view. Hey, well, go do this and go do that. I'm like, oh, man. I want to go. I want to complain. I want to sit there. And I want to say, hey, my, the ice is not cold enough in my drink. Price per launch no. has to come down a lot, and I think these relanding rockets, SpaceX's relanding uh, boosters, is bringing it down by a factor of ten. Yeah. And so, once the the launch price is yeah. you know, per kilogram, putting it into orbit is is cheap enough, then it'll be an expensive vacation. But normal, but it'll be within reach. I think that's that thing. That's the goal. Yeah, and it's, you mentioned SpaceX and and uh, Virgin Galactic, which is a suborbital yeah. flight. Is also uh, Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin. Right. right. Uh, so my, my students at Columbia, a lot of them are going to these places. Probably yours are as well. They want to go work at these places. And uh, Blue Origin, I, I think, is is another one of these exciting companies. They're they're close, I think, to launching their new Shepard, which is a, a reenacts more or less the flight of Alan Shepard, suborbital flight, fifteen minutes or so, and then another spacecraft that's an orbital spacecraft they're designing is called New Glenn mm-hmm. to replicate what you know, orbital flights like like John Glenn. Took. Right. So I think we're really at the brink of it. I think we're kind of at this this transition. My friend Peggy Whitson, astronaut with more time in space than any American, was visiting a couple of months ago, and she was she was saying, I uh, heard her speak, and she was saying she thinks we're right at this stage going from barnstorming to commercial airliners 100 years ago. I think that's where we might be. It's very ah, exciting. It's exciting. So I think it's exciting, but I think all those guys that we mentioned, whether it's Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or entrepreneurs, business people, and they realize if the price doesn't come down, no one's going to be able to go. It doesn't matter how cool it is. So I think that's they, they understand that, and I think probably with reusable rockets, uh, I've heard Jeff Bezos say the problem is that you developed this great technology that we've had in the past. The problem developed this great technology, then you throw it away. Saturn V boosters are all uh, out in the ocean somewhere, right? So he recovered some of them, by the way. But but now we're recovering that that stuff, so you can fill it up with gas and use it again. Cool. And I think with that, it's time for us to uh, we're out of gas, right? Yeah, <laughs> out of gas here. And we're going to wrap up. Uh, you've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. And I want to thank my co-host, Chuck Nice, for being here today. Always a pleasure to be with you, man. And our expert astrophysicist, Matt O'Dowd, host of PBS Space Time and professor at Lehman College. Come and watch PBS Space Time or enroll at Lehman College. There you go. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like probably both are good options. Yeah, Maybe one more affordable than the other, but, you know, but I think both are great options. Um, it's been my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks to our whole crew making it happen. Thanks for you for listening. I'm Mike Massimino, uh, also known as Astro Mike. It's been a blast. <laughs>